we recently launched Liberation Martial Arts Online for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free or perhaps one that came directly from us. Thanks to TMWR, Christopher Chin, and Dominic Domingo for signing up. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online, or you just want to increase your financial support of the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows also on Patreon. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. This episode was produced by SH and New Guy. Coach Jason and I are back with another edition of Fight Study. I know I've been sick. I know Jason has had his own health things going on, but we're here now and we're back. Jason, how are you feeling? Hey, Sam. Thank you for asking, brother. I appreciate it. I really do. And hopefully I can get this out without, you know, crying or coughing. Not that, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. I would just like to keep your your editing responsibilities to a minimum if possible because I know you're a busy guy. But uh, truth be told, I'm much better. And to be honest, I was pretty, I was pretty fucking negligent and incredibly reckless with my own health. You know, I tested positive for COVID on on June 7th and again on the 11th. And though I wasn't infectious anymore uh, by the 19th, you know, I pushed myself way too hard. And especially when you consider that I have asthma and some other inflammatory issues that I don't really talk about. And all the corticosteroids I was on triggered some severe insomnia and it all sort of spiraled out of control. But I'm feeling healthy again and it feel, feels good to be back to work, back to the gym and back to the podcast. And I'd like to take a second, if I could, and point out my own toxic trait of being entirely too stubborn and too prideful to even admit I was sick, you know, until I found myself in the ER twice, you know, twice in three days. And I almost died. And, uh, and anyone that's listened to this, this pod, to our podcast and any of our episodes has to know that I have a bit of a nihilistic tendency, right? It's pretty obvious most of the time. Uh, but believing that you might not make it out on the other side of any, any acute respiratory distress or breathing difficulty, well, that'll change your perspective a bit, you know? And, and I say that with a caveat, you know, so will all the love and support of friends, family, and the Southpaw fans. And I really appreciate it. So I wanted to thank everybody for all of it, every bit of it. That's a messaging I've been seeing a lot more where health professionals are telling people not to try to push through COVID where maybe you're even working from home or you're, you're not trying to be around other people, but you're still trying to like be active or still work from home or still try to like push through COVID. And they're saying that's really making people worse. So just actually use illness to be a reminder to take it easy. Stop pushing yourself so hard or stop trying to like deny that you're sick and, uh, you know, keep pushing yourself. And I think your story is kind of a cautionary tale, right? So maybe for other listeners, especially I could see that in the martial arts world, martial arts fans who can probably push themselves too hard too, when not even COVID, just with the flu or bronchitis or whatever they got going on thinking, yeah, it's not that bad. I could push through this. Like, don't do it. Just rest. Take some time off. Resting is radical. 
it is in a way its own resistance against the system that constantly wants you to work, right? And constantly wants you to be productive. So it is okay. Give yourself permission to take a break every once in a while, especially when you're sick. Absolutely. I think that's a great life lesson. Like illness is burden enough and the world we live in is just layered and riddled with burden. So let uh let yourself unburden yourself just for just for a moment and just rest, repair, recover, regroup, and hopefully refocus. So you know, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good. And if I can you know, at least relay one message, it's just hey, take it easy on yourself out there. Don't be like Sargus ending up in the ER multiple times in a span of three days because you're not listening to your body. Absolutely. And I thought I was done. The the nurses over at Ruby Memorial are they're doing I, I'm not even a religious guy, but they're fucking doing God's work. And I must have thanked them a thousand times because I thought I thought it was it for me. They're like, You're back again? Yeah, they're like, Oh, honey, no. What are you doing? I'm like, uh, my throat's swollen shut. And then they're like, Oh no. So they took my all my blood gases and they were all over the place and like, Did you take any medicine? <laughs> no, I took my inhaler. That's all I have. Uh, my Simbacort. And when I came in the first time, I had taken like every antihistamine that's ever been made all at once. And that was a horrible idea. Apparently, apparently they're contraindicated past a certain point. So again, take heed. Um, let the medical professionals do their job. We have an abysmal healthcare system in the United States, but it is a healthcare system and they're much more educated than I and most likely you or anyone else that's trying to self-diagnose or self-treat. So let the let the professionals be the professionals and if the goal is health let the goal be the goal well let's get into it then we're going to be looking at ufc 277 first let's talk about amanda nunez's five round destruction of juliana pena to regain her bantamweight title and become double champ again for as lopsided as it was it was to be still compelling just because of the narrative being told by both women I think you've mentioned, Jason, how sometimes a fight can be like a movie where it has a story, right? It's telling a story. It has a life of its own. And this fight very much seemed like that, especially because it was a rematch. Nunez showing that she is the better fighter and Pena showing not only how determined she is, but also how aggressive she is. I think if it's a beatdown with just toughness, but also you see the fighter starting to break, it's not interesting at all. But with this, Pena didn't break. She didn't gas, she didn't get discouraged, but most importantly, she kept making us believe at the right moments to keep a lopsided fight exciting. With that said, I can't agree with Rogan or DC, well, about much, but especially when they said Pena showed the blueprint to beat Nunez. No, she did not. Jason, let me start with this question. What did you think about the changes Nunez made for this fight? Well, obviously, uh, um, they worked. They worked well. So uh, she started slower and in the southpaw stance. Um, and she also rarely overcommitted. And with that, she maintained her stance incredibly well. And that's, like, that's the story of the fight. Like it, there, there are pieces and there are ebbs and flows and there are instances of domination. We can talk about the right hook in the first round. We can talk about the straight left in the second round. But the story of the first half of the fight was the master class in counterpunching while simultaneously giving ground. And much of that was built off of patience and Nunes uh, um, letting Juliana rush. You know, uh, Nunes showed really good patience and seemed set on using a lot of feints so that she can draw out some of the offense from Pena. 
if she also was really disciplined, um, if she couldn't drive that offense. I liked what she did whenever whenever Nunez would give ground, shuffle away, and reset if the multiple feints weren't getting a reaction out of Juliana. So showing some solid discipline and eventually allowing her to find some really big shots in the counter. And, and another thing that Amanda Nunez did was throwing with much more speed and quickness as opposed to power every single time. And let's give some credit to Juliana because she's surprisingly quick and she throws that one two one and that one two one one with with her durability. Um, she was able to rough up Nunez in that first fight with just her durability and that odd blitz sequence of one two one or one two one one two. Um, so Nunez was outstanding in the first round with this with her counter right hook. Pena overcommitted with the lead hand, which was almost exclusively her jab hand throughout the fight. And we see later in the first round that Juliana Pena comes, becomes a little hesitant to throw that jab. And that sort of hesitance is never a good thing against Amanda Nunes. You know, not good at all. And though we talk about the right hand in the first round, it's the left hand that floored Pena in the second round. That was it was it was a pretty impressive shot that I think would have ended the night for just on anyone else in that division so diversified attacks from both sides uh continued to land and pay dividends throughout the fight and i'll also say this as is common it's common with orthodox fighters switching from southpaw nunez looked great offensively she really did but she has some glaring holes in her defense and juliana laced her a couple times with a, a laser beam of a right hand down the middle that you know, i just said the same thing for the other side other side but that shot probably would have dropped just about anyone else in the division that isn't Amanda Nunes. So Nunes did get hit a lot whenever she backed straight up with her chin in the air and reaching with both arms, but it was a calculated risk from the southpaw position that I think paid off big time and showed some excellent coaching and um, adherence to a game plan from Amanda Nunes. Nunes had a new camp and even a new fighting stance, like you mentioned, and this counterpunching style for this fight. Now, last time they fought, I remember Nunez looking kind of nervous or upset as she was walking into the cage. Like she didn't look focused. And when she lost, she looked relieved. But this fight, from weigh-ins to walkout, she looked focused and dialed in and also in better shape. Jason, do you think she even needed all those camp and style changes to beat Pena? Or she could have beaten Pena anyway if she was focused and prepared like she was for this fight. I think I underestimated Juliana Pena because of that spammy one two one 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 two one two run forward freestyle swimming style of fighting that that honestly I think is garbage. But but and I know that's harsh, but it works for Juliana Pena, Juliana Pena, and more importantly, it worked for her against Nunes the last time they fought. But I've come to the conclusion that Julia Pena is much better than most people give her credit for beyond just her grappling credentials. And though Nunes has looked superhuman at times, Pena is far too seasoned, too durable, and has too much cardio. And is just way too much of a competitor to come at her with anything but your best. You come at her with weak shit, she's going to beat you, even if you are a man of Nunes. So like, Julian is so game and seemingly better in title fights. And with her durability... Nunez can't go in there just looking to blast her out. You know, that might work two or three times out of 10. But we all know, right? I say this all the time. Fatigue is the great equalizer. Sometimes I'll say power. Sometimes I'll go with fatigue. But fatigue makes, you know, uh, 
superhumans and the mere mortals pretty quickly. So going in with focus and with strategy is incredibly important. And that seems to be what Amanda Nunes and her camp did in this fight. And they did it in pretty impressive fashion. How much do you think the stance change to Southpaw threw Pena off? I think it did a lot, very much so. Coming in with one twos with that spammy rush got Pena lit up like a fucking Roman candle, you know, and mostly by the right hook in the first round. And not just not just the southpaw stance, but the ability of Nunes to counter uh, while giving ground was brilliant. As I said before, you know, it looked like it looked like Juliano was freestyle swimming while sprinting at Nunes, and that pressure got to Nunes in the first fight. Um, and this time around, Nunez just patiently waited to knock her fucking block off when she tried it. Now, I think it was a miscalculation from Juliana's camp in thinking Nunez was going to come in with the same game plan that got her lunch taken from her last time. Now, so let's give credit where credit's due. The camp, the fighter, uh, the ability for the camp and the fighter to put hubris and pride aside um, and use some strategy and ring craft. And what, what was an extremely dominant performance against a, an opponent that roughed her up pretty badly the last time they fought. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Now, after the first round, Juliana Pena went to her corner very confused about the Southpaw stance because she wasn't ready for it. And so her coach didn't seem phased at all, though. He just said, it's easy. It's just a simple adjustment. Just be aggressive and get to the clinch. So what do you think about this adjustment that a corner made because they stuck with that almost to the very end. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to be too harsh because they said a lot of, a lot of the right things conceptually, right? Conceptually being aggressive and getting to the clinch is the right idea, but it's certainly easier said than done. Right. Nunes is still a very physically strong fighter with good wrestling, a ton of power and a wrestling is, I mean, I'll say it again. Wrestling is really good when she uses it and random blitzes. were getting Juliana clipped over and over. The advice also failed to address the counterpunching of Nunes while giving ground. And like I said, it's easier said than done. Uh, and without tactics to achieve said strategy, the cornering sort of fell, fell flat, at least in my opinion. You know, strategy being your overarching, what are we going to do? We're going to get to the clinch. But how, what are our tactics we are going to use to get there? He did mention something about smothering the lead hand, but she's throwing it from a looping overhook. She, she came up high to low with this clipping shot and you don't want to you don't want to start swatting at that or you're going to take it on the chin or the ear or the temple over and over like she was um and it was an adjustment that they they called for without giving sort of the tactical information to pull it off and also if i'm standing orthodox and you're standing southpaw just from how our feet line up wouldn't it be hard to get to the clinch because to get to the clinch, you want our stance to be parallel with each other, right? But with this, it seems like our foot would get in the way. Maybe from there, it might be easier to drop to a single leg and then come up for a clinch. But how our stances match up, wouldn't it be hard just to get to the clinch unless you had a specific way to get there? 
Well, your 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 tactic was is great, right? A single leg snatch, little, little, just flip out a feint of a jab, get that right hand reacting, drop low, snatch that single. As she goes wizard, as your opponent goes wizard, and in this case, as, as Amanda Nunes goes wizard and pulls up, you're pulling you up into the underhook position. You are already fifty percent of the way to the fifty fifty position, that pummel position, that over under position, and that does it. That's better cornering than just saying this is what we need to do. You know, if I say, hey, meet me at the airport. Okay. Why? Because we're going to catch a flight. But if you say, oh, yeah, I, I, I met you at the airport. I'm like, yeah, I was, I've been there for three hours. Where are you? You're like, oh, I walked. What's well, a fucking bad idea? It's not the <laughs> best way to get there. If you said you took a fucking, if you took a boat, I'd be like, again, worst idea because there's no port to the fucking airport, right? It's literally in the air. So let's not do that. So how do we get there? There has to be some, some rhyme and reason. And they were, and they were conceptually spot on while being tactically insignificant. They just, they, how do you do it? You know, just keep giving that one, two, one, two. Don't tell her to do the same thing that's getting her fucking egg scrambled every time she, she lunges and reaches forward. Don't tell her to do that against a strong, physically strong, powerful counterpuncher and say, hey, the thing that you're doing that's getting your ass kicked, do that in an attempt to, get the clinch like there's going to be some hesitation there and many a fighter has been knocked into the stratosphere because of that kind of hesitation to put it into layman's terms her corner basically told pena what the end result should be what the goal is but not how to achieve that goal exactly exactly it goes to what are our strategy what's our strategy uh, what are our tactics to achieve achieve that strategy and what are our objectives to know like how we're going to achieve that strategy? And it was, it wasn't born of any of that shit. It left it all out. And the part of it was like Amanda Nunes and her camp did a lot of things, right? Who, who thought that Amanda Nunes would fight off the back foot for the majority of the fight. And that, and then whenever knowing that the only way back into the fight was for Juliana to blitz, um, Nunes just lowered her level with like a little, like almost like the Frankie Edgar post tap where he posts on the shoulder and snatches that leg and just runs through him. She was finding easy takedowns there because of the overaggression, having to fight from behind. Um, and the, the predictable blitzing attack with the one, two ones from Pena. So you know, she, I, I thought they were great adjustments from Amanda Nunes, the fighter and her entire camp. Why do you think Nunez's team made that change to Southpaw? I don't know for sure, but here's my here's my hypothesis. It seemed to me like they were looking to exploit Juliana bringing her jab hand back low because she does it a lot. She has a great one to one, but she brings it back like a choo choo train straight. She throws it straight out, but she brings it back at her hip and rolls it back up. So you can time those, especially if you're punching high because she's protecting her chin with her shoulder, but her hands are never higher than that. And so they just came like top down with that hook and kept clipping her on the side of the head, top of the head, eyebrow, temple, anywhere, um, anywhere that wasn't the jaw. But Juliana bringing her jab hand back low and her constant reliance on the jab was predictable, right? So, but it's still problematic in the first fight. So they devised a game plan, at least I believe they did, predicated on giving ground and catching Pena rushing. And it worked quite well because. Pena kept rushing. So 
I think that was the calculus there, thinking that if they go with the old adage, if Pena's camp went with the old adage, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Well, they're coming with this shit again. And here's what we're going to do if they do. Another thing about this style that I noticed is it really helped manage her energy systems where because she's allowing Pena to effectively lead, right, to do a lot of the work and to allow Pena to come to her and just counter strike her and not go so heavy with the punches because you don't need that much power when somebody's running at you and be more precise and throw the counter instead of thinking about volume and power shots. This new style also helped her then fight all five rounds and not look tired at all. Yeah. So all she had to do was shuffle, give a little bit of ground and, uh, and then just blast her with like a, a laser beam of a right hand or a hooking right or a, or a straight left that found its mark. Um, and almost like punched her and punched her opponent into a somersault, like reaction, like literally all the way back on her shoulders with her legs in the air. That's how hard she hit her as she ran forward. And then she just sent her ass over elbows um, time and time again. I think part of the reasons why some of those knockdowns look so bad isn't even that they found their mark on Pena's chin or even hit her hard enough to really knock her out. It was more like the way she was running in. She was so off balance. It more like hit her, to your point, where she almost somersaulted backwards because her balance was so off. Yeah, it looked like she was running running forward in the dark and into a volleyball net, right? Yeah. You didn't see it. And <laughs> like, her legs kept going, but then her upper body just went backwards. And you're adding you're adding power onto your opponent's punches. And the, I, I hate to say it's because like Julian Pena is a is a good fighter, and I, I don't mean to discredit her at, at all. But a lot of those one two one sequences were, were with her eyes shut. And I, I granted, like they landed for her in that first fight, but you need to do that shit with some composure and some vision like, at the championship level. You just can't blitz it. And I get it. Like once you start getting dropped by Amanda Nunes, and she's a she's a strong puncher with great big fists, she's, she's an excellent fighter. Yeah, like I would I would be a little flinchy and probably start to squint or shut my eyes too. But like, if you want to get it done with that kind of style, you need to be more present going forward. It can't be random and it can't it can't be spam. It just can't. Not at the world championship level. I think to add to that, another reason why she fell over like that is because on top of punching with her eyes closed, she also punched tall. As she was getting flinchy, she would close her eyes and like kind of get tall like a scared cat. You know how like a cat gets on their tips of their paws and like raises themselves up real high? It was almost like that. She started getting really tall. So then because she's on stilts and her eyes are closed, of course, she's just going to easily not just fall back and get knocked down. But yeah, to the analogy you gave, like running as hard as you can into a volleyball net that you don't see. Yeah, then that's that's how it looks. She had no center of gravity. She looked like she was sprinting and like you said, punching uphill brings your center of gravity gravity up as opposed to setting down. Um, and that did work for her in the first fight, but you know she came with it again and they Nunes in her camp had an answer for it. And they didn't have an answer for that answer and if you would have told me that that that's how the Nunes camp was going to address the the blitz problem that was presented by Julian Pena in the first fight I 
I would have given given about a 25% chance that they would consider giving any ground. You know, Amanda Nunes is probably one of the most physical fighters um, in the UFC in any weight class, male or female, doesn't matter, or any division, doesn't matter. Um, she's just that physical. So you would think that she doesn't, there would be some, some ego that says, we don't have to give ground. We fight like we fight. And if there's someone that could pull that shit off most of the time, it would probably be Amanda Nunes. But they fought smart. They got multiple knockdowns, good ground and pound, smart takedowns that were well-timed. And, and credit to, as you said before, Juliana Pena did just enough with some submission attempts and landing her own blitz every once in a while to make this interesting enough to like, hey, maybe, is she going to get that new plot? Is she going to get that arm bar? She's throwing up a triangle. And then the counter of either shrugging the legs, passing them by and with some ground and pound or finding side control and landing some elbows or even tight elbows inside the full guard. Um, like there were some like concerning moments for Amanda Nunes. But those concerning moments were normally met and usually met with great elbows and decent ground and pound from that top position. We got a dominant one-sided fight that was still pretty fun to watch because, like I said, I think we all need to give Dulai Pena some world championship credit because I think that she's going to be a tough matchup for, for Nunes for a while. You know, Even if she does get dominated like that, her durability her grit and her cardio um, unless these fights start to, unless this fight specifically starts to weather her and put more miles on her than, you know, than you normally would. Um, she's probably got the goods to go another five with um, what is the most dominant uh, women's champion in history. So it seemed like Nunez not only beat Pena, but also her camp beat Juliana Pena's camp. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. Now let's talk about Brandon Moreno beating Kai Cara France by TKO in round three to become the interim flyweight champion. This is not the first time Moreno has beaten Cara France. He had previously beaten him by decision by figuring Cara France out as the fight progressed. Since then, they've both gotten better. Moreno went from a scrambly BJJ guy to a boxer and now a kickboxer. Cara France got better at in-fight adjustments, reads, and patience. But it looked like Moreno still has Cara France's number. The fight was close until it wasn't. Jason, how did Moreno get it done? You know, normally I'm pretty long-winded on these answers, um, but this one will be um, rather short. You know, for, for Moreno, composure and confidence, born of his epic battles with Davidson Figueredo, as well as a commitment to the body, excellent defense, and vision. You know, add in the continued improvement fight after fight. And I'll say it again, that is MMA done correctly, not just resting on your laurels because you are world championship caliber or world champion. Continuing to improve, making that, that concerted effort to adjust, not sticking with solely a style that works for you. Because when that style doesn't work for you and you're unable to abandon it and shift to another style, you know, are you well-rounded enough to make those adjustments? Not do you want to or do you wish you could. If you make an adjustment that is necessary, but you're fucking bad at it, it's just going to get you fucking mauled in there. So he has the ability to make now in-fight adjustments and fight uh, specific fighters 
a specific way. With this, it was with his fight against Kai Car France, he was able to pressure him and find those kicks to the body. I think that was the story of the fight. Do you think it was just a good shot that Moreno landed? Or did it seem like Moreno was starting to figure Car France out? Uh, Moreno was landing that left kick to the body throughout the first three rounds. You know, he, he dropped a bomb of a, of a left kick at the end of the first round. Uh, it was a thud. And I think that sort of changed the way. And, and credit to Kai Car France. He pinched his elbow a little bit and he was a little hesitant to throw the right hand. But then he just, I don't know, he still started letting it go. You know, maybe to his own detriment, you know, but it's it, it's Moreno's commitment to pressure to find those shots that got him hit a bit, you know, especially in the third round. But it was also a strategic calculation built off of his pressure that allowed him to find it and drop Kaikar France with it in the third after like poking holes in that gas tank over and over and over throughout the first three rounds. You know, he, he Moreno hit some long kicks like at like a odd distance. Which, which tells me he was hunting them um, throughout, throughout the fight. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Something that fans might notice when they watch MMA is you don't see a lot of switch kicks land. If you watch Muay Thai, you'll see them land all the time. And you might simply chalk it up to, well, MMA fighters aren't as good as switch kicks. And I would say, look at somebody like Essen Barboza, who's very good at that. And that's a signature kick. But you look at his record, right? And anytime he starts to get in the top five, that's when he starts to lose. In those big fights, he loses because he has a style where you have to be a certain distance from him and then he could really get off. But MMA is not usually fought in that range, especially at the highest levels. MMA is usually fought further out. And so because it is further out, that's why you see things like calf kicks work because you're basically hitting them with the very tips of your legs, right? And that's why you're seeing things like the karate style do so well. In particular, I mean the point karate style because the point karate style is also fought from really far out. Yeah, it's about, and it's about making up that distance, right? Yeah. So Moreno was looking for that marching left kick to the body instead of a switch kick. What started out as his lead leg, he would march into a stand switch and throw that left. But instead of like normal Muay Thai march, he would take these giant steps because especially at that weight division, they stand even further away and they're even quicker. So he needed to close that distance even faster by taking these monster steps and then stepping into a left kick. And even then, he barely caught him with the end of his foot. But it so happened that when he caught him with the end of his foot, Instead of landing with the instep where it wouldn't have hit as hard, Kaikar France was even so far out that Moreno hit him with his toes. And then it ended up being even worse than the instep because the toes dug right into the liver. Yeah. And I think that's why it landed different than the other previous body kicks he landed because of where Moreno's foot landed on 
Kaikar France. Think of a, a baseball swing, right? I'm always making baseball metaphors and baseball analogies. But when you get like full extension of those hands and arms and you just like turn and rotate and it doesn't even look like you're hitting it that hard, but you're in that striking distance, that distance where the, the, the power threshold is at, is maximized and you hit at that exact moment um, and those toes dig in with full force. And he's been able to touch that spot and pry around sometimes with the shin, sometimes with the, with the forefoot and, you know, those kinds of things, you're banking those shots. They are money in the bank. They're going to pay dividends later. Not, not to quote the commentary because they kept saying that over and over, but they're right. Like for once. And, and that shot that landed in the, the third was, was pretty hard, but it may not have been as hard as the first shot, but it, but it was still pretty hard. And, but it hit in just the right spot after that spot was really fucking had enough of being hit, man. It's like, I'm out. I'm the liver. I'm an important thing. I'm both an organ and a gland. Quit fucking me up. I, I got shit to do. So we're going to sit this one out. Kai, take a few punches to the head and keep holding your belly. And that's what the body did. And that's how the fight ended. The other nice thing that Moreno read about that kick was because a lot of times when you're retreating, if you're in orthodox stance, right? You take a step back and usually you go to your right and just kind of circle away so that you're not going straight backwards, right? So when you're throwing that left kick and stepping into it, then when you're trying to escape to your right, you're also running into Moreno's left kick. So it was brilliant in that sense also. Yeah, yep. And that I think that retreat to that side also set up the spinning back fist that sort of landed, right? So he kept trying to escape to Moreno's weak side or, or left side. and Again, a spinning back fist comes from that the, that direction, and you're just sort of leading yourself into it. So, but I thought Kai Carfront was fighting a very good fight, making some great decisions um, against another fighter who was fighting also a very good fight, making some better decisions, or maybe even not better at the time, just coupled with a little bit more pressure. And you know, the third round was, was going Kai Carfront's way until it wasn't. What was Carl France finding success with? I think the things he does incredibly well, like he, he's got a good right hand. He sets things up. He sees things. He's got good fighter vision. You know, and I think we're probably going to see Kai Carl France have another crack at the, at the title eventually. I mean, this is me. I like him. I like him a lot. I think he's most likely going to stay around the top three or four in the division for a while. So long as he doesn't get hurt or absolutely brutalized in a fight, you know, is because his striking is layered. And he was fighting that way with decoy shots, setting traps and diversified attacks. And he was having some success with that, especially in the third round. And also in the first round where he was, he did a pretty good job of handling, um, handling Moreno's pressure, but you can't fight just handling so much pressure to come back with some counter pressure of your own. And when he did, he made some great decisions, but goddamn, if, uh, Moreno's vision and defense wasn't on point that night, I mean, it was just, just other world it was really really impressive from someone as grappling eccentric as, as he is you know so when we saw excellent footwork good decision making great cardio um and he's never going to be easy to wrestle or stall out against the cage moreno had a tough time with it so you know i think he's a complete fighter that is continuing to improve at 29 years old and when i, I speak of fighters who are doing mma the right way i think he's one of them now let's talk a bit about Derek Lewis who just got KO'd by Sergei Pavlovich in the first round. 
This is his third KO loss in four fights. He's 37, which isn't that old for heavyweight. And being KO'd three times in four fights isn't a career ender in heavyweight because the division is so thin. But it does seem like Lewis has lost a step. And now he's lost by KO seven times. Let's go by a weighted heavyweight average here and set heavyweight expectations. What's going on with Lewis? Does it seem like it's a nerves thing about fighting in front of his home crowd? Is he just slower or getting worse with his striking? Or do you think guys have figured out if you get in close to Lewis and get off first, you'll win? It's like everything and all those things and none of those <laughs> things. I mean, it's it's heavyweight, right? It's a problem to begin with. <laughs> um, the, the biggest problem with Derek Lewis is he has to learn how to be patient and reset. He's always looking for that money shot, that wild one-hitter quitter. And yes, he finds it so much of the time. And yes, that's made his career. But when people aren't there just waiting to get hit, he has a very difficult time placing punches to set up that target and find that big shot. And his the blessing of his power is also a curse. You know? You'll hear me say this multiple times probably about, about Derek Lewis every time we cover one of his fights. His power is a blessing and a curse because he relies on it so much when he is getting just absolutely mangled in there by by anybody. He thinks that sort of just winging a wild shot that will land. Because Christ, even if he hits you in the shoulder, he might drop you. He hits so fucking hard. But like, you may win some fights that way, but you you he's not a world champion because he's not doing world champion shit. I say that all the time. He has world championship power, but you know, I guess if you just keep hunting those wild shots and then you get touched up by a guy who's just as big as you, just as strong, and also hits pretty hard and has a decent chin, you know, we can make the argument that it was a quick stoppage, but I don't think bowing down and falling face first is intelligently defending yourself either. So if that is your attempt at defense, then the fight job probably should have been stopped anyway. If that's just what happened to you physically, then you know, then maybe Big Dan saw something we didn't, and the fight should have been stopped anyway. I don't know, but you have to get better at resetting, readjusting, and refocusing, and not just you know winging it every time. And I literally mean winging punches and winging fighting. Like fuck it, let's just see what happens. That's not how you fight at the highest level of this game. Now let's talk about Alexandra Pantoja's mugging of Alex Perez. He just walked him down and choked him out. He's kind of the uncrowned flyweight king. He's beaten both Moreno and Carl France. Perez was a title challenger and he's beaten him. He's also beaten Brandon Royval and Manel Kopp. What did you think about Pantoja's performance? Did he walk through every punch that was thrown at him by Perez? <laughs> he didn't hesitate and give one shit about anything that Alex Perez had to offer. And Alex Perez is, is a tough, tough fighter. I, mean, I, I do think he has the goods. I really do. Um, he's been in there with, with really good guys. Um, he's always looked competitive against all of them. Askarov is, is a great wrestler, so that's a little bit of a, you know, that takes away Pantoja's wrestling advantage. But hey, unless you can find a, a mismatch or the, the ability to control him, 
he can strike. Um, he can wrestle. He's super, super athletic. He's really quick. He makes great decisions, and his submissions are are just sick and twisted. Man, I love to watch him grapple. And you know, I'm typically a strike centric, wrestling centric guy, but like, I love to see his shit on the ground. I really do. So, probably someone I want to continue to watch. And they, like, everyone should know his name. I think it's. Maybe it's because I, don't, I haven't been paying as much attention, but even on on social media, I don't hear enough about Pantoja and and just how good he is. I think it's sort of a a missed opportunity from a marketing perspective from the UFC. Everyone should he should be on the tips of every uh, MMA journalist's tongue, and every fan should know who he is and the the run that he's been making. Lastly, let's talk about Magomed Ankalaev beating Anthony Smith by round two TKO. Everyone expected Ankalaev to win. He was the heavy favorite, and he won without much resistance. There's a lot of hype around him now, and he's only 30. Do you think he's got the goods to be champ? He very well may. You know, when you t- first, let's talk about his chin. Right? It's outstanding. He can get, you hit him with a baseball bat. You hit him with a cinder block. He doesn't seem to budge. Um, He's one of those fighters who has who's been blessed with a great chin at the same time, the same sort of composure and ability to comport himself in the pocket, dealing with that kind of that kind of uh aggression. Uh and even against powerful guys at 205, 205 pounds, he's he's seemingly unfazed. He finds big shots from the southpaw position by making good decisions and having a pretty educated jab. And he's also really quick for a big man. So he'll flick that jab on you and you gotta be responsive. He's with his tools um, and still a limited data set on him. You know, he's someone who I really want to follow closely in anticipation of what I see as a very, very high ceiling. I think, I think he very well may, may make some noise at 205 pounds. And now with John Jones gone, who are the really good Southpaw striker wrestlers, right? So I think just because of that, on top of all the things you mentioned, makes him very tough at light heavyweight. Yeah, and there there are some guys that can crack, but when we talk about the like Juliana Pena and her chin and durability and cardio, like those things can you start fighting for world titles and you have conditioning and you have a chin, um, well, that that can make that can make you more competitive against other individuals that may have a superior skill set because the second they tire. All bets are off. Like I think that's the the Homer Simpson cartoon. Whenever he was like letting everyone beat on him until they tired out, right? And they just died from exhaustion. It's not really the same thing in, in the fact that like if you can make someone tired, you can close that gap of a skill deficit uh, pretty quickly, and you're starting to see that more and more. So some of these fighters that have this the Tons of power and a great skill set that have underperformed in conditioning, like they can get snuck. And you know, I speak of Felder a lot, you know, because I, I I know him and I know his fight style pretty well. He, I think, he overperformed over and over and over because of his durability, because of his chin, because of his cardio. And he fought some really great fights and he beat some really good fighters that most people thought he shouldn't have early on. Because he knew where his strengths lied, and uh, and he fought to them. So, 
I think uh, you, you're going to see other fighters start to make sort of the same calculations. And if if your chin can carry you, uh, be disciplined in the other facets, and you can you can fight some really good guys really close. I think Ankalaev has the tools to to be like, among those guys at 205 with that kind of durability skill set coupled with quickness some this great some really good decision making and you know the, the ability to evolve as a fighter and what is a shallow division at this point all right that's it for this episode if you like what we do support us on patreon we also have the liberation martial arts program if you want to train with us from wherever you are there's already a lot of techniques exercises theory pedagogy and even political theory believe it or not you can also find that on our Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. With all that said, thanks for listening. See you, folks. <laughs>